We are continuing in our series going through the Gospel of Mark. We are nearing the end. We are in chapter 15. I want to draw your attention here to the latter half of chapter 15. We are going to close out, Lord willing, this series next week uh, with chapter 16. But I want to draw your attention to here uh, as we are at the scene of the cross, as we are seeing uh, a view of Jesus from the perspective of John Mark, the, gospel, the writer of this gospel. We are at this scene, the scene of Golgotha, the, the place of a skull, as it is referred to in verse 22. And here is the precise moment where, uh, that Mark has really been building towards the entire time. And all the events that have come before, all of the, the little stories, the little anecdotes, the little illustrations, the miracles, everything, has been building towards this moment of Jesus bearing the sins of the world. This is the climax, the fulfillment of all that Jesus has said that he would do. It's coming and happening here right now. Right before our very eyes. But I want you to know something in verse 37. Verse 37 says this. And Jesus cried out with a loud voice and breathed his last. By this verse we are made to understand that Jesus has died. Jesus, the God-man, the man of the, the God in the flesh, has died in this moment. After uh, bearing all, and enduring all of the agony and struggle and anguish of the cross, here in verse 37, at this moment, he dies. Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, you don't have to turn there, but he has the same sort of verse in which he says he yielded up his spirit. And John says he gave up his spirit. And here very much, uh, very clearly, we are to see that Jesus, the man, has died. Life, breath, just as we are familiar with, with loved ones that we have lost, so too is Jesus here. Life and breath leaves his body. We know, of course, because if we are faithful, good Christians, we know, of course, that this isn't the end. That he rises uh, from this dead state in just a few short days. He walks out of that grave. That's what we will get to next week. But I want you to sort of sit in this moment. Sit in the moment just like Jesus' apostles. Just like those in the crowd this day. Jesus is dead. To them, there's a period at the end of that sentence. To them, this was a state of finality. To them, it was uh, the end of all that they had come to be familiar with, all that they had been accustomed to. This promise of the kingdom, it dies along with Jesus. At least in their minds. At least in the minds of those who were privy to this moment, who were there that day. Can you imagine the heartache and the grief? After all that Jesus has said that he would do, he is dead. Of course, uh, we know that Jesus didn't actually, or didn't stay dead. And actually, that's the point of a lot of contention along uh, people who, who wish to uh, uh, rid themselves of Christians. They want to disprove uh, all of this by saying that Jesus didn't actually die. They come up with all these theories. Maybe you haven't really thought about this. But I, I challenge you to sit and think through the, quote, deadness of Jesus. Because I think it's actually a really important concept to sort of let your mind sort of stay in, sit in for a moment. Because I think also because how you will view the resurrection is going to be shaped by what sort of conscious state you think Jesus was in prior to that moment. 
Of course, those who wish to explain away the resurrection, they will often say the, the popular one is this theory called the swoon theory. Have you heard of this? They, they basically believe that Jesus didn't die. He swooned. He, he, he fell unconscious. He fainted. And that the cold air of the grave uh, when he was put in that tomb kind of woke him up or something. I don't know. Um, I can just clearly say that that is patently false. Uh, not just because I believe it. I think it proves it in this text here this morning. I want you to see that really clearly. That you can literally believe that Jesus literally died. Which also uh, gives you so much more confidence in knowing that he literally rose from the dead. Which we'll get to next week. But I want you to see this because... We are told in verse 43 that Joseph of Arimathea, we're going to get to him in a minute. He, pro- he approaches Pilate and notice what he says. Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent council member who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, coming and taking courage, went into Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Now, very clearly, he is asking for Jesus's dead body. But even more clearly, even more descriptive than here in our English, the word body in the Greek is actually corpse. Give me Jesus's corpse. Give me the corpse of the one that you crucified. And this stuns Pilate. Notice he says, Pilate marveled. Why does he marvel? He marvels that he was already dead. You see, crucifixions were normally long, excruciating processes. This is no different. At the third hour, starts the process. And here, as it says in verse 34, at the ninth hour, all day, Jesus has been enduring the painstaking process of the crucifixion. And it wasn't normal for one who was to be crucified to pass away, to die so soon into this process. Such is why the centurions were about to go out and, yes, break Jesus' legs. Because that would, uh, uh, that would uh, um, uh, speed up the process, so to speak, of the one being crucified to actually die. If they broke their legs, it would make it impossible for them to breathe. And believe it or not, most people, when they were crucified, would actually die of asphyxiation. Not enough breath before anything else, if you can imagine that. All of the torture that they go through, and they end up dying because they cannot breathe. And here Jesus has already died. He is dead, and we know that he surely is dead because Pilate sends out someone to confirm it. Sort of like a a guy who goes out to the scene of the crime to confirm the time of death and so to speak. Notice Pilate, he marvels, verse 44, that he was already dead and summoning the centurion. So an official Roman soldier, a captain of the guard, so to speak, he summons him and he asked him if he had been dead for some time. So when he found out, verse 45, from the centurion, he granted the body, the corpse, to Joseph. So if you believe that Jesus fainted, then you have to involve Roman conspiracy into this. Because they give their stamp of approval that this corpse has had all life out of it. That Jesus is dead. And we know that. We believe that. And I think that's precisely what Mark is doing. Mark, as we have noted throughout the series, he's writing to an audience that many believe were Gentiles. Many actually believe that they were Romans. And he's saying, your people, your soldiers, your very governmental guard of centurions, they gave their stamp and approval that this man died. 
He is literally dead. And yes, he died. He did so according to his own will. I love those verses that we read. He gave up his spirit. He breathed his last and yielded his spirit. Or as the King James has, he gave up the ghost. No one took Jesus' life. They didn't have to come out and break his legs in order for Jesus to die. Jesus died of his own will. He surrendered himself to this process. And even in the middle of it, he gave up his life. He laid his life down, as he says in John 10, 18. No one, let me read you that verse because it's, I want you to read it. John 10, 18, you can just write it down and read it later, I suppose. John 10, 18 says, no one takes my life from me. But I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down and I have power to take it again. This command I have received from my father. This is Jesus openly declaring this. No one can take my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. Here Jesus is doing just that. Of his own will, of his own accord, he's laying his life down. Completely giving up his life for you and for me. He literally died. He didn't go into some magical state. He didn't faint. He didn't fall unconscious. He was dead. Life fell out of his body. This, I think, is the fact that has utterly changed the world. Because, yes, I think the the fact that we will get to next week that Jesus rose from the dead also changed the world. But you have to realize this fact first. That he is dead. Mankind's history turns on this moment on the cross. It turns on the moment because we can look back to it and know for sure that this man who is dying there, hanging there, bleeding there for us, is the God-man. The man who is also God. The God who has been made in flesh. Lives Before that moment, lives in that moment, and even now, have all been fundamentally altered and changed because of what Jesus accomplished when he died. Because of what Jesus secured for us, what Jesus accomplished for you and I. And ever since this day, ever since this hour, we have been living. Yes, you and I are included in this statement. We live in the aftermath of the cross. We are still in that moment. Still enjoying all of the incredible blessings and benefits and gifts that have come out of Jesus literally dying. And I want to highlight those for you this morning. Just two very prominent ways that I see here. Of how we are able to live in the aftermath of the cross. Two ways really quickly. The first one I think comes in verses 33 through 41, which we have for a lesson about clearance. A lesson about clearance. Look at verse 33 again. It says, now when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of those who stood by when they heard that said, look, he is calling for Elijah. Then some ran, filled a sponge full of sour wine, put it on a reed and offered it to him to drink, saying, let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus cried out with a loud voice and breathed his last. 
Here, of course, as we were spending much time on Jesus, or spending time on last week, Jesus breathes his last. Jesus is bearing the full weight of all of the world's sin. And here it takes its toll and Jesus dies. And when he dies, the payment, the ransom for your sin and for mine is, is paid in full. It's accepted by God. Just like in the Old Testament times, if you remember, they would have a system of sacrifice and atonement where families would bring a lamb, an innocent lamb, sacrificial lamb to the altar. And they would sacrifice that lamb there as an appeasement, as an atonement for their sins. And here Jesus is doing the same thing as the, the, the writer of the Hebrews will say once for all. Thus, Jesus is the true and the better lamb. The lamb whose sacrifice extends in power from then till now. And now even, yes, even a thousand years later, it'll be just as powerful. This is how powerful Jesus' sacrifice is. How powerful Jesus' blood is. And you want to know one of the greatest benefits of this death on the cross? It comes in the next verse. It says, Then... After Jesus has breathed his last and died, it says, Then the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. This tearing, this is the splitting, the the rending, as we might have it, of the veil of the temple. Which has major ramifications for you and I, for our clearance. I, I might even use a better word, our access. Because I want you to uh, think about this. The veil of the temple, uh, this veil is a large sort of ornately embroidered curtain that separated the sort of the general court of the tabernacle from the holy place. The place where God's glory was, was, at, was actually residing. So to put yourself into that context again, put yourself into this situation in which the way worship happened... Was full of separation. Full of segregation. There was no sort of concept of of this idea of access. Of having clearance into other parts of the tabernacle. Everything was regimented. For us, we are Gentiles. Most of us, I assume. We only had access to an outer court. Any Jews would be able to go further in. But Gentiles, those who were not of Jewish lineage, they would be only segregated to an outer court of the tabernacle. There was a further realm called the court of the women. They were allowed in this place. Just a little bit further in. And even further beyond that, there was called the holy place. This is where the priests and the priest's sentence could, would enter. And that's where they would minister. This is where their duties could be performed on behalf of the people. And even further in than that, there was called a place called the holy of holies. The place where the literal glory of God was residing. The place where it was there that the, whole, the high priest on one day per year would enter into. And would offer up a sacrifice for all of the people as a picture of God's atonement. And even then, his access to this place was just restricted to one time per year. Based upon him following all the strict rules and regulations of making sure that the sacrifice was properly made. You can sense and feel this strictness, this separation. 
It was there for a, a, a very good purpose, of course. It was there to emphasize the holiness of God, emphasize his righteousness. This is how uniquely, supremely holy God is that we have to reverence and worship him in this way. And he is worthy of all of that. But now. We get this incredible verse. This incredible truth. That you and I. There are no more restrictions on us. There is no more walls of separation. There are no more veils of the temple that are barring us out. Why? Because the veil has been torn from the top to the bottom. An image trying to suggest the fact that it's been completely shredded. You and I have access to the Father, the Holy of Holies, to Jehovah himself. Not by going through any sacrificial system because the sacrifice has already been given in Jesus. We have free access to the Father. This is the incredible good news of the gospel that we have access to the Holy of Holies right now. In your car. On your way to work. When you're sitting at home or on the breakfast table. Wherever you are, you have access to the Holy of Holies. This is what Jesus has done. This is what Jesus has done for all of us here in this room. For all Christians who have ever believed in the name of Jesus. There's no more need for a human mediator to go through to try to get to God. No more uh, sort of having to go to a priest to have our forgiveness given to us. To have our pardon declared to us. As it says in 1 John chapter 1. If we are faithful to confess our sins. He is faithful to forgive us our sins. And that confession doesn't have to be made to any human person. You can make it to God right now. Right here. Right in this room. Wherever you are. Because we have been given access We have been cleared to enter by this blood of Christ. By this blood of Jesus, which clears the way for us for forgiveness and salvation. We have access to the very presence of God, the Father. This to me is one of the most wonderful, amazing truths of the gospel. Paul talks about this in Romans 5. Let me read you those verses, actually. It just kind of struck me. Romans 5, he mentions this same word, access. He says, this is Romans 5, verse 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God, with Christ, through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Paul was referring to this very thing. We have access to this grace by the blood of Jesus. The grace of atonement. The grace of forgiveness. The grace of having your sins washed away from you. No more sacrificial system. No more human priest to go through. No more rich, uh, rigid system of rules and regulations and, 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 and things that we have to go through. We have access to God the Father by faith. What a wonderful, amazing benefit of the gospel of Christ crucified for us. That in him, in Christ... Through Christ and with Christ, we can go to the Father. 
Go to the high priest himself. This, by the way, is one of the prevailing themes of the book of Hebrews. I've been, uh, I've been sort of teasing a lot of people that uh, I'm going to preach through Ecclesiastes. And that's what I'm definitely going to live up to in a couple of weeks. I promise you, I'm, I'm getting ready. I do want to preach through Hebrews too. I keep going back to it. I keep going back to finding just amazing truths for here and now coming out of this book of Hebrews. And in fact, let me read you this. Uh, this comes from Hebrews chapter 8 verse 6. I want you to see this. Hebrews 8 6. This idea of access into the holy of holies. Hebrews 8, 6, the writer says this. But now he, that is Jesus, has obtained a more excellent ministry. Inasmuch as he is also a mediator of a better covenant. Which was established on better promises. You can sense the fact that this Jesus, he is the true and better one. And that's essentially what he's trying to say all throughout this book. The better system, sort of the better covenant, the better promises. Is that atonement, peace, salvation is given for free by grace through faith in this atonement. That he has already enacted, that he has already finished and finalized. This is Jesus, our true and better high priest, who has cleared the way for you and I to come to him. This is what we believe with all of our hearts. This is what I believe with all of my hearts. That no, no matter who comes through that door, they have a way to access the Father. No matter what has defined them, what, no matter what sin still clings to them. The pathway is clear for them to come to this throne and ask for grace. And it is given to them liberally because Jesus has already made the sacrifice for their sins. There is no hopeless sinner on this earth. There is no hopeless lost sheep that cannot be found again. That cannot be brought in again into the fold, into Christ. This is what the gospel tells us. This is the good news that we have. There is no one that we cannot have hope for. You have a family member that you've been praying for for 20 years. You have a a cousin or a nephew or perhaps a child who has run away from how you brought them up. They're not living for Jesus. There is no hopeless person, no hopeless soul on this planet. We pray because we believe that there is a better promise coming out of a better covenant that has been established by the true and better Messiah, Jesus himself, who took all of our sins and paid for them by his own body, by dying himself. This is Jesus. There's a passage I want to get to. Well, I'll I'll just read it. Because I I want to. (laughs) Hebrews chapter 10. I'm going to read a larger section. But I want you to see this high priest. And how he is the better mediator. And this is exactly what he's doing. When the veil tore. This is Jesus. Look at verse 12 of chapter 10. It says. But this man. Jesus. After he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever. Listen to that phrase. Jesus on the cross. One sacrifice for sin forever. Forever. Sat down at the right hand of God. 
From that time, waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. But the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us. For after he had said before, this is the covenant that I will make with them. That after those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws into their hearts and in their minds I will write them. Then he adds, their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now where there is remission of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and a living way which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh. And having a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. There is a lot there. I promise I won't stay here and preach this even though I want to. But just think about what this gives to us, what this promises to us, what this asserts that is in us and for us. That we have boldness to enter into the holiness by what? The blood of Jesus. That if by faith we believe in Jesus is sprinkled on us. We come before him with boldness, with courage, with strength. Not because of anything in us. Not because of the good deeds we've been doing. But because of the blood of Jesus. Because of the blood of this innocent lamb. Who stood in our place. And shouldered all of our sin for us. Because of him we come boldly. Because of him we can come. And ask for grace and help in time of need. As it says in Hebrews 4. Because of him. We have clearance. We have access to grace, which is salvation. Jesus has cleared the way for you and I to come to God. A lesson about clearance. Going, go back to Mark chapter 15. Secondly, I want to look at this too. A lesson about confidence. A lesson about clearance. A lesson about confidence. Look at verse 42. Now when evening had come, because... It was the preparation day, that is, the day before the Sabbath. Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent council member, who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, coming and taking courage, went end to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. We know at the beginning that this Joseph of Arimathea has come to request permission to bury Jesus' corpse, bury it properly, so to speak. And Mark gives us this hint, this hint that this is something that Joseph had to ask or had to muster up courage for to do. It says, coming and taking courage. This might not seem like a courageous act, but I assure you it was. Because you see, Joseph of Arimathea, as it says here, is a prominent council member. Yes, He is a member of the Sanhedrin Council. Yes, the very men who conspired and actually convicted Jesus in a concocted phony trial. That very council Joseph was a member of. Those were his associates, his co-workers, so to speak. Those were men with which he had familiarity. 
The very men that were striking Jesus in the face and blaspheming him while he was hanging on that cross. Those were Joseph's associates. And here he's coming and asking for Jesus' body. Luke chapter 23 verse is 50 and 51 tells us actually that he was not in agreement with this plan. That he wasn't sort of, uh, well let me read the verses. I'll, I'll mess up the, if I try to remember I'll mess it up. Um, Luke 23 verse 50 says this. Now behold there was a man named Joseph, a council member, a good and just man. And he had not consented to their decision. Indeed, he was not in agreement with the Sanhedrin's decision to conspire and convict Jesus. He was from Arimathea, a city of Jews, who himself was also waiting for the kingdom of God. He was in agreement with their plan. Perhaps he wasn't even there. If you remember, that night when Jesus is arrested, there is an illegal gathering of the Sanhedrin. They're not allowed to meet at night. Perhaps he wasn't at that meeting. I assure you, he probably wasn't. They probably knew not to invite Joseph. Instead, as we are seen here, Joseph is actually a disciple of Jesus. Who longs for the kingdom. And actually one of the most telling verses in all of scripture about this Joseph of Arimathea comes from John chapter 19. I want you to see this. I know I'm taking to a bunch of places. But I want you to see this description of Joseph of Arimathea. John 19 verse 38 says this. After this, Joseph of Arimathea, this is you know, a parallel of the same scene, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. Here is Joseph of Arimathea, a Sanhedrin council member, disciple of Jesus, But secretly. In the shadows so to speak. He served Jesus. Fate was faithful to Jesus. But secretly. Who's to say how sort of devout he was. How sort of disciplined he was. How devoted he was to Jesus. Uh, His allegiance to him was always kept a secret. Perhaps he was protecting his position. Protecting his prominence as a prominent member. As it says in, in back in Mark chapter 15, it says that he was a prominent member of this council, meaning he was wealthy, he was influential, he was well-to-do. He had a lot riding on this Jesus guy. <laughs> and here, he's mustering up courage to ask Pilate for this corpse of Jesus. To me, I see incredible courage in this moment. Some might say it's coming too late, but I say it's coming right on time. Because after the cross, Joseph perhaps has this realization that his secret faith cannot be secret anymore. That his following of Jesus, but secretly, cannot be that way anymore. It has to be courageous. No longer is he now lurking in shadows trying to protect his discipleship of Jesus from being outed by his friends. He is openly, courageously asking permission to revere the body of Jesus. If you stay in John chapter 19, you'll see that. And I want you to also see this too. I've preached on this before, but there's an incredible other figure in this scene. If you go to John 19, look at verse 39. Look at who is mentioned with Joseph of Arimathea. It says, and Nicodemus, hmm, 
who at first came to Jesus by night, also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds. By the way, which is enough for several hundred bodies. And then they took the body of Jesus and bound it in strips of linen with the spices as the custom of the Jews is to bury. Joseph and Nicodemus, our guy from John chapter 3. The guy who came to Jesus by night out of fear of what other Pharisees might think is asking Jesus about salvation. Now at the end, he's coming and courageously worshiping, reverencing the dead Jesus. I think about these men. Think about Joseph. Perhaps all of his stakes were riding on the fact that Jesus would usher in the kingdom. Perhaps that's true. He was faithful to him. And perhaps now that as Jesus is dead, he is wishing, he's beating himself up. If only I had been more vocal. If only I had been or said something. Can you imagine the regret that he must feel in this moment? Imagine the shame as he comes to this tomb, this sepulcher, and is trying to revere this dead Christ as much and as best as he can. Such as why he brings enough myrrh and aloes to be enough for several bodies in their internment. And here Joseph does exactly this, despite how it looks, despite his reputation, despite how his, his followers or in his fellow councilmen might perceive his actions. He reveres his Lord and he's courageously caring for Jesus' body. To me, I see much in Joseph and Nicodemus. Much that speaks to me. That we cannot be disciples of Jesus in secret. That we cannot just flirt with the gospel and try to maintain our reputation. Try to maintain our social standing. Try to be okay with God but fear man's words more. That we're afraid of what people might think of us. We're afraid of what people might say to us if we're that type of a Christian. That type of a person who speaks openly and boldly and loudly about their faith. I don't want to be viewed as one of those crazy Christians. Here at the end, after the death of Jesus, Joseph is sparked to a courageous faith. And I have to imagine that perhaps he was in among those who saw the risen Lord that that courageous faith stayed with him. And in fact, a lot of this is not in scripture, but if you read sort of historical accounts, many believe that's what happened with Nicodemus. And in fact, many historians, ancient historians believe that he actually died a martyr as a missionary preaching the gospel in the first century. The man, Nicodemus, who questioned him and went all the way along serving Jesus in secret, perhaps he has died as a martyr for Jesus' name. Don't live with your faith just secret, just closeted inside you. We are cleared to live confidently in Christ. This is the good news that we have together this morning. The good news that comes from Jesus' passion and death means we can hold everything else in this life loosely with a loose fist. Reputation. What people think of you, all their opinions, all that, we can hold that loosely. Because you know that our reputation resides with Jesus. 
He's the one who has given us everything. As it says in 2 Peter chapter 1. Everything according to life and godliness comes from a knowledge of this Jesus. And that way, a dead Jesus on the cross is actually one of the best inspirations for a life lived for God's glory. Of course, we know that he didn't stay dead. That even more transfigures our own lives. But here in this moment, Joseph musters courage, asks for Pilate's permission to revere the body of Jesus. Alexander McLaren, one of my favorite orators, he says this about this precise moment. He says, the sight of Christ's cross not only leads to courage and kindles a love which demands expression, but impels joyful surrender. My friends, this is what the cross does for our lives. It clears the way for you and I to live confidently in what the cross does. It frees us from guilt and sin. It frees us from fear and shame. It frees us and it liberates us to live confidently because of Christ's accomplishments on the cross. This is why we can read all throughout the scriptures. This is why the cross must remain our anchor, our focal point. As we live in this life. As we, yes, fear and stress over what others think about us. Over what others might say to us. We can live confidently clutching this cross. Which clears the way for us to enter into the holiest. Because of Jesus' blood. Jesus' death on the cross clears the way for you and I to live confidently right now and in the future. This is how we can live boldly in the aftermath of the cross. Yes, even now, 2,000 odd years later after it, we can live boldly and confidently because of what Jesus did. Because of how Jesus died. Let's keep our eyes fixed on this cross. I'm going to read Matthew Shively's favorite verses to close this morning. Hebrews chapter 12. Listen to some of these verses and and how they impact us in life right now. Hebrews 12 verse 1 says this. Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily ensnares us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. How are we to run? By looking unto Jesus. The author and the finisher of our faith. Who for the joy was set before him. Endured the cross. Despising the shame. And has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Keep your eyes on the cross. Which clears you to live confidently for God. Let us pray.